You probably know it well enough to not even have to turn there. Uh, but anyway, um, no problem. Uh, I'd like to read it anyway because it's going to have a bearing on what we share tonight. It simply says this, uh, Romans 8.28, We know that all things work together for good for them that love God, for them that who are the called according to his purpose. And I want to just uh, kind of emphasize something tonight uh, uh, in a couple of things. First of all, I want to emphasize the overruling providence of God. How God overrules and works things out for his glory, for his purpose. And uh, in our lives individually, in the overall work of God, I read a fascinating book, and unlike Nate, I started at the beginning and I ended at the end, but uh, uh, I read a book last week called Messiology. I don't know if anybody's, Nate's read that book. And it's by George Verwer, and uh, he was the leader of Operation Mobilization. And uh, basically, uh, it's kind of a play on the word missiology, which is the study of missions. And what he has come to realize is that men mess it up. And messiology is a better way of describing it than missiology. But despite men messing it up, God still works. Aren't you glad that God still works despite our messing things up? So I want to bring that out tonight, even in our own little story of Lord working despite us and uh, leading us along the way. And I want to think a little bit, too, about uh, this, uh, something kind of mysterious and mystical. Uh, how does somebody get called into the Lord's service in terms of missions and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes it comes across really mystical. You listen to somebody, how they, the Lord called them into the work, and it's kind of like, uh, sounds very, very mystical. I, I remember hearing a guy say uh, that he was being in, interviewing a, a man who was going to be a missionary to Brazil, and he asked him, well, how do you know the Lord wanted you to be a missionary to Brazil? He said, oh, that's easy. Somebody, I was praying for the Lord's direction, and somebody gave me a Brazil nut. And he said, ah, Brazil. And he went to Brazil. The guy who was interviewing him said, it's a good job they didn't give you a Mars bar. <laughs> right? But sometimes it seems that kind of mystical. And so I want to kind of try and demythologize it all a little bit and talk about our own story and so that maybe you can grasp it. Um, I was saved at 20 years of age out of a Roman Catholic background, at least religiously. Socially, I was a drunkard. So religiously Catholic, socially a drunkard. And I heard the gospel at 20 years of age for the very first time. And it was interesting because I grew up in so-called Christian religion, but I had never, ever heard the gospel. And I heard it at work, not in church. And uh, uh, I remember reading John 3.16 for the very first time and just being overwhelmed with the thought, God loved the world, it must mean he loves me. And then thinking, how could he ever love someone like me? And he gave his only begotten son. And uh, I'm an only child and only son, so that made an awful lot of sense to me. Uh, and I thought, wow, what amazing love. And so anyway, I'm not here to tell my testimony, but I, I heard the gospel, believed it, and was saved. And uh, early on in my Christian life, the Christians that I hung around with, they were, they were pretty passionate individuals. One thing that they all did was they read through the Bible every year. And they were the only Christians I knew, so I assumed every Christian read through the Bible 
every year. So I started reading through the Bible every year, and I've done it ever since. I really thank God for their faithfulness in systematically reading through the Word of God. And if you are systematically reading through the Word of God, God can really speak to you from His Word and he spoke to me through his word. I, I, I read the book of Acts with fascination and thought about these, these people and how they went out and reached their generation with the gospel. And it got kind of exciting. Uh, the Great Commission, those kind of things. Just a really daily, consecutive really reading of the word of God really got me fired up for the things of God. And then on top of that... Um, the, the the other thing that I did was I was introduced by these believers to good books. Uh, George Ver was messiology all the way through. He's talking about all the books that influenced him. And I want to just say this. Warren Wiersbe said this, a reader is a leader. Jabe Nicholson said, those that don't read have no advantage over those who can't read. That's a word in season for our generation. So as a young Christian, I read True Discipleship by Bill McDonald, blew my socks off. It was very challenging. I thought, I didn't realize what I was getting into when I read that, what true Christianity was all about. And then I read uh, uh, a book by Leonard Ravenhill, Why Revival Tarries. Again, very searching. And then read a little biography of Gladys Aylward, Missionary to China. And I remember when I read that book thinking, this lady, she was a, a chambermaid, in London, England, wanted to go to China. Nobody would take her because she wasn't educated. None of the mission boards wanted her. So she saved up, bought a train ticket, went to China, had such an impact that Hollywood actually made a movie of her called In of the Seventh Happiness. Amazing story. But the, the takeaway for me was this. If God could use Gladys Aylward, then God could use me. That was the takeaway for me. There was God delights, and then I saw it in 1 Corinthians as well, that he delights to use the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the mighty. And I thought, wow, that means we can qualify, right? Anybody in this room, if you feel weak and foolish, you're in. God can use you. Why? So no flesh can glory in his presence. That's why. Right, so so we can't say, God, you should be so glad you've got me on your team. How do you, I don't know how you'd ever manage without me, but I'm really, you know, no, it, we can foolish things, right? It's all of Him, not of us, and that's the wonderful thing. And so, uh, reading these books were, were a tremendous impact. But the other thing that really struck me, and and this is uh, where uh, these Christians, one of the things that these Christians did, um, is that they regularly were involved in in open air evangelism. And uh, my wife, uh, from being uh, just a few weeks old as a believer, was giving her testimony on a soapbox in Leeds City Centre in England as a, as a new believer. When I got saved, I was on the soapbox too. And it wasn't long before we were out open-air preaching every Tuesday, every Saturday. And we were interacting with souls. People would come up to you with questions I would not have a clue how to answer them. I mean, I'm a new Christian. How do I know the answers? But I determined that next time I wouldn't get caught on that question the second time. I'd have an answer. It drove you to the scriptures to have answers for these people. And it was a tremendous thing. And the more we were involved in this kind of work, the more all I could think about was eternity and souls. And the job that I had, good job uh, working uh, in... uh, 
pension advisor. It always bothered me that nobody ever asked me what comes after retirement. They all want to know how to get there. Most of them never actually lived to get it, but I was helping them get it, but nobody wanted to know what comes after. Isn't that amazing? People don't think about eternity. You've got to confront them with the message of eternity. And so, uh, remember, uh, more and more convinced about this, uh, the need uh, to go into full-time work to get this message out. And my job was just shuffling paper in the light of eternity. And I said to my wife, I think we should quit were very naive, I mean, relatively new Christians, just go out and preach the gospel. And my wife said, no, 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 no. We, we just got a house, we just got a car, how are we going to live? Practical questions, right? Very practical questions. So anyway, uh, I kept praying because you've got to be together or else there's no point, right, if you're both not on the same page. So I kept praying, and in February of 83, we went to a missionary meeting, just like this. Missionary meeting, you don't go to many, this is the first missionary meeting I've been to for a long time. Thank God for this missionary meeting. But that night, it was snowing in Leeds, England, and uh, they were advising on the radio, don't go out unless you have to go. And we kept thinking, well, should we go or shouldn't we go? And then we thought, well, the missionary's coming, Uh, he's going to be there, we better go. So we went, braved the journey, got there, and that night God spoke to both my wife and I. And it was interesting, the guy was a missionary uh, with New Tribes Mission. Uh, he was uh, from, uh, had been working in Senegal, West Africa. He grew up there, right? You know that place. His name's Frank Brealy. I don't know if you ever, you know Frank Brealy? Yeah. Anyway, Frank Brealy, uh, they employed a houseboy, an African, to do kind of household chores while they learned the language so they just to kind of lighten up their load so they could learn the language. And anyway, they learned enough to communicate with this boy. And they noticed that he had scars all across his chest. And uh, kind of like they'd been made with a knife or something like that. So they began to uh, ask him what all that was about. And it was really uh, things that he had done to appease the spirit world. He'd actually cut himself to appease the spirits. And eventually they they got well enough in the language that they were able to share the gospel with this young boy. And he was gloriously saved. And then he said to uh, Frank Brealy, he said, how long have you known this message? And Frank said, well, I've known it all my life. I grew up in a Christian home. I can't ever remember not hearing the gospel message. And then he said, well, uh, how long has this message been around? And he said, well, it's been around for a couple of thousand years. And then the next question was, well, how long did it take to get from England, where Frank was from, to Senegal? He said, just a few hours. So the the boy looked at him and he said, well, what took you so long? He said, all this was not necessary. And my wife and I heard that that night, and we said, Lord... We've got, to, we've got to respond to this. We, we've got to respond. Somebody has to tell. We know what it is to grow up not knowing the gospel, but at least it was apparently available. We didn't hear it. But this guy had no opportunity until Frank went. So we went and talked to the, the elders of our church, and uh, they were a bit concerned. We were young believers, and they said, okay, uh, what we want you to do is we want you to... Uh, to pray about some things. They were behind the open air work that we were very much taking a leadership role in. And they said, you need to pray uh, that somebody would replace you in the open air ministry. Okay, so that was the first thing. And then there was a second thing that we had to do. We, we had bought this house 
And it was a it was an old house that we had ripped apart and we hadn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And so we had to sell this house because you, you had to be debt free to go into new tribes, right? Can't have a mortgage, right? So so Lord, we've got to sell this house. Problem is this house is in the same cul-de-sac where my parents live. My parents are not believers, they're still Roman Catholic, they're not happy about us going to the mission field. And if we'd have put a for sale sign up in the street, all the neighbors would have come and asked my dad, What's Mike and Amory doing? And it would have been awfully embarrassing for them to have to talk about us leaving to go to the mission field. So we decided we would do two things. We'd pray for a replacement for the open air. And we would pray that God would sell our house as it was without a real estate agent and for £21,000. Now, it's probably worth about £500,000 now. But back then, £21,000. So... Uh, amazingly enough, a guy, a, a surgeon from Edinburgh moved down to Leeds who was an open-air preacher, and he slotted right into the open air. That's question one answered. Second thing, this house business. We met, actually, there was three of us would meet every Friday night to pray, Lord, bring a buyer for our house. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, he he uh, had a, a, a co-worker who wanted to move to an area called Roundy Park. Well, we lived in Roundy Park. So my friend said, oh, I know somebody who's got a house. It's not on the market, but he's interested in selling it. And he said, oh, I'd love to see it. So he came and looked at it, saw that it was a shell, right? We've gutted it. He said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I want to do it myself. I'll give you 21,000 pounds for it. So... We knew without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord wanted us to go into missions. Okay? Except some interesting things came along. In my work, um, I hadn't told my boss yet our intention to leave and go into missions. And, uh, he, first thing he said to me, uh, when I went back into work, he said, uh, he said, oh, your immediate boss is leaving and we want you to apply for the job. It's yours. And, and her boss is leaving and we've got to go through this ritual, but that job is yours too. That would have been two promotions, huge, uh, increase in salary. And so you begin to question, is this from you? Is this from the enemy? You know, it's amazing how the, these tests. But anyway, we, we really believe that God had clearly shown us in these specific answers to prayer. And I had to tell my boss, no, I won't be applying for either of those things. We're leaving. You need three people now, not just two. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, that was good. But we're very concerned, and my wife particularly, she's convinced we'll be the first missionaries that will starve to death. Uh, how are we going to live all the rest of it? And and uh, ironically, I'll give you a, this is a true story. Went through one evening. Uh, we had um, two people that supported us uh, every month, very, very faithfully. One of them was diagnosed with liver cancer, and within three weeks was gone. And his widow said, "I can't continue on." The other family we had led to the Lord, and they said, "We don't think you're going to make it as missionaries, even though somehow we managed to lead them to Christ." They didn't think we'll make. They stopped supporting all in the same week. So all of a sudden, we've gone from just two supporters guaranteed to zero. And my wife and I were laying in bed one night, and she said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I said, honey, the Great Commission is not my idea; it's God's idea." 
If he wants us involved, he'll provide. If not, I'll get a job. And to that day to this, I just want to say this, not because our faith is strong. We don't live by faith. We live by the faithfulness of God. And there's a huge difference because my faith is kind of can be held to skelter. His faithfulness is very consistent. And so we can, we just want to testify to that. But so anyway, we go to new tribes and we go through the training. And um, uh, it was a wonderful experience, except for one thing. I would say <clears throat> the, the positives of Bible school was that we had never been used to good consecutive teaching through books. Uh, dispensational theology was taught to us in a wonderful way. It was absolutely outstanding. Uh, I'm really thankful for it. But one of the things that I thought was really had an impact negatively on us is that you're living with this view of one day going to the tribe. And it's almost like you put everything else on, on hold for this day in the future, right? When you're going to be in the tribe. So everything, all you're thinking is preparing for this ultimate day down the road. All, all the while, all around you, precious souls are perishing and going to a lost eternity. And it's very easy sometimes for us to be thinking, what does the Lord want me to do in 10 years' time or 5 years' time? But really the question is this, what does the Holy Spirit want to do today through your life? What lost sinner does he want you to speak to today? You may never get to the mission field, but you are on the mission field where you are, in a sense, all around you. There are lost souls, right? And so we made that mistake. We were just kind of uh, planning, preparing, and all the rest. Of it. And I would say we lost a lot of gospel fire in mission retraining. And that's not, I'm not blaming that on NTM. I'm saying that's our fault. But nevertheless, it was true. And I, I'm just trying to share some of these lessons. But in the providence of God, we, uh, we learned many good things. We had to write papers on the New Testament church. Uh, that was an excellent uh, thing to do. We were only allowed to use a Bible and a concordance. That'd be a great exercise for everybody to do in this assembly. Uh, how is the New Testament church governed? How is it edified? How is it, how is discipline? What about the role of women? Only a Bible and concordance. We don't want to know what Schofield says, Ryrie says, or anybody else. What does the scripture say? We had to do that, and it was a tremendous exercise that actually resulted in, a, in us coming into assembly fellowship. Because I remember thinking to myself, if this is right for the mission field, New Testament principles, then why aren't we doing it now? And most of us weren't, including the staff, you see. Uh, I don't think that's consistent. In other words, if it's right, it's right, do it, right? And so we... we looked for a place and ended up in assembly fellowship in, of all places, Florida in 1989. That's another story. I don't want to stop there. But I want to just talk about the providence of God because uh, as we went uh, through training, we ended up coming to the U.S. Uh, Calvin asked me how do we end up in the U.S. because new tribes in those days had a Bible school in England. But if you wanted to do boot camp, which was training for kind of intensive training for the mission field. You had to come to the U.S. And so we landed in January of 86 in Chicago, Illinois, in an ice storm. Welcome to America. And uh, uh, we were in training there. And um, while we were there, um, they uh, asked if I would stay on uh, to be uh, on staff with New Tribes. And we ended up staying four years instead of just two years. Uh, in the midst of all that, 
all the time we've got this goal, we're going to go to the mission field. Philippines is the place that the Lord put upon our hearts. Again, just by exposure, uh, we were exposed to a lot of missionaries talking about the different fields. And because my wife and I are from a Catholic background, we have a particular interest in Catholic people. And Philippines is a Catholic country, but we're also interested in tribal people. And that seemed to fit all the boxes. So anyway, we're going to go to the Philippines. But uh, in the process, uh, while we're in the middle of our language school, uh, learning linguistics, um, my uh, father-in-law passed away, and we had to leave the training, go back to Ireland. And uh, in that language training, it's so intense that, uh, that you, you, if you lose two weeks, you've lost the whole thing. So they said, you're going to go back to the funeral you, basically, you may as well stay six months and then come back and pick up again. So we ended up spending six months repping for new tribes in Ireland. Got to speak in churches all over Ireland. This is the providence of God. We have no thought in our minds we'll ever go to Ireland as missionaries. But I'm talking about new tribes in all these little Bible studies and different groups all across Ireland. Then we go to the Philippines get to the Philippines. My wife is pregnant with number three. Uh, she can't breathe. Uh, she's passing out constantly. She's really sick. The field committee say, you need to get your wife out of here. And I'm saying, Lord, we don't have a plan B. Like, n- very few people want to live in a primitive tribe. We're happy to spend the rest of our life here. But my wife can't even look after the two kids we've got. And, and she's losing weight on the one we're expecting. And so we left the Philippines. And I want to tell you something. Left bawling our eyes out, saying, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right? I mean, so few people want to do this. We want to do this, and we can't do it. And so um, when we visited Ireland, all these little groups, when they realized that we had to leave, we got all these letters in the Philippines saying, hey, we wondered why you were going there in the first place. Come here. We need help. So we, providence of God, right? We took it as of the Lord, went to Ireland, and we were there. And um, we, we arrived in Ireland in 1990. The Catholic charismatic movement had gone through the country. And for the first time ever, Irish people were reading their Bibles. Full of questions. The priests didn't have answers. The nuns didn't have answers. We ended up having evangelistic Bible studies every night of the week. People were getting saved left, right, and center. And we say, Lord, now I know what you're doing. You see, he is the Lord of the harvest, right? And, and he, he's able to kind of mess things up in our plans so we get in line with his plans. So there we are in Ireland. We're there for eight years, have a wonderful eight years. But in the midst of all this, again, interesting, providence of God, we did the lottery. Now, before you say, I'm not going to have you back tomorrow, let me explain what I mean by that. <laughs> Anne-Marie has brothers living in Ireland, and they, uh, the U.S. had this visa lottery program, okay, where um, if you wrote in and it arrived on a certain day and you were picked out, you could get a green card for the U.S. if you were Irish. So her brothers, who were all farmers, not good at filling forms, and say to Anne-Marie, would you fill in forms for us? So she filled forms for all of her brothers. Oh, I might as well do one for us as well. So she put one in because we'd been always on a student visa in the U.S., so we put one in. The only one that got picked out, guess what? It was ours. 
So we figured, well, we'll come back and we'll just come back for a short time and then go back to the field, get the green card if we ever decide, because we're commended now from the U.S., our home assemblies in the U.S., if we could, we'll, we'll come back. We, go, we come back to the U.S. for that short period of time, and then, amazingly, September the 11th happens. And the INS, through a processing all this, just ground to a halt. So we're stuck, right? And by the time it's all sorted out, eight years have gone by. Like everything changes. Your kids are a different level of, and everything. And the Lord opened up doors for itinerant ministry. Again, in the providence of God, National Elders and Workers Conference 2001, Boyd Nicholson is supposed to be the speaker. His wife falls down the stairs, breaks a hip. He asks if somebody else could step in. Somebody calls me, can you replace Boyd Nicholson? I said, uh, you need to rephrase that. You don't replace Boyd Nicholson. No, could you speak of this? And all of a sudden, the door is open for itinerant ministry all over the U.S. Now, all I'm saying is, heart to serve the Lord, following the scriptures, right? Serving where he puts you. But with this sense of the overriding providence of God. And I'm not sure where it's all going to end. But uh, a verse that my wife and I have been praying, because our time is just about gone. I want you to go back to Psalm 71 for a moment. Because uh, for the last 20 some years, we've been doing um, uh, itinerant uh, preaching in the U.S. But also still very involved in missions. Uh, uh, seven trips to Malaysia, uh, two to Singapore, three to Kenya, two to India. Uh, in fact, um, I just did my income tax, Psalm 71, please, uh, did my income tax last week. Oh, what a relief to get that sent in. And um, uh, I've got to tell Uncle Sam how many days away from home I am. Uh, and of the 200 days I was away last year, 120 of them were overseas. You know, so still involved in missionary work. In fact, when I leave Florida, I'm going to Norway, and then June I'll be in Ireland, and uh, July I'll be in Malaysia again. And uh, so again, still very involved in missions, uh, but again, very much conscious of the flexibility of his leading. Psalm 71, verse 18. Uh, well, let's read from verse 17. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to everyone that is to come. And I don't know what the next chapter is. I have no idea. But I do know that I can have absolute confidence in the providence of God to even overrule what seems like disasters for his ultimate glory and his ultimate purpose. And there's a certain sense in which missiology really is messiology. It didn't quite work how we planned. <laughs> like we thought, here we are, we're off to the Philippines, we'll be there for the rest of our lives. It didn't work that way. Was God involved? Absolutely. Was his will done? No question about it. And the joy of it all is one of the promises we have in the word of God is leading. The spirit of God leads his servants. Those 
that are the sons of God, a mark of sonship, are those that are led by the Spirit of God. And isn't it wonderful to allow him to lead us? We often sing these things, right? He leadeth me, O blessed thought. But it's wonderful to look back and to him be the glory. I hope that, that tonight he's the hero of what I'm sharing. Because really, he is. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And uh, again, we don't know what the next chapter is, but it's a joy to be along for the ride with him. Father, we're just uh, thankful uh, for the word of God. And we're, we're, it is searching. We think of missionary challenges that stir us, that stirred my wife and I back in February 83 to want to respond to those that had never heard and been so moved to sell everything and to follow your leading. And we're thankful for your faithfulness through these many years. And again, that despite us, you have worked. And again, we just want to acknowledge that, that you're still committed even tonight, to using the weak and foolish things of this world to accomplish your purposes. And we just rejoice in that, and we give thee thanks. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.